This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to the 513th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tonight we discuss player engagement in your tabletop role-playing games, but first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. Cool. Do we have any announcements? Patreon. Back the Patreon. That's back, always an back, announcement. Back, 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 back the Patreon. You always do well by backing the Patreon. If you're listening to this, you probably have heard already talk about the Patreon. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do there. So back the Patreon, jump into the Slack room. Yeah, Slack room. All the stuff from Children of the Shroud. You can get, be a part of the game by letting Phil know how to make our lives more complicated or at least introducing interesting characters to the game. All right, that's really all the announcements that we have, right? Like, no more, no less. Cool. Let's move on to the workshop for player engagement. What? what? We're going we're gonna to do things a little bit. Stop that. Stop okay. that. Cut that off. Thank you. We're going to do this a little differently. Uh-oh. You know how much I love different. Yeah, I know you do. You I'm going to take some deep breaths here. Take I some fear change. My throat thanks you, but... Cue the music, Bob. It's time to play The Definition Game. We're going to play The Definition Game, and today's contestants are Phil, better known as The Definition Panda, Jerry, our resident expert on every game published before 1995, and the never-forgotten and always-loved master of the soundboard and voice of the players, Old Man Logan. Yes. In today's game, we will be building our definition for player engagement, You three will decide which of these definitions fits our needs best. Then we'll mesh them together to create the misdirected mark definition for players' engagement. Contestants, it's It's time time to define! Okay, in round one, we're going to start with player. So, Phil, you think a person who plays a game is a good fit for our definition? I'm going to say a solid yes. I think that's a good start. Okay, good, good start, good start. Jerry... Do you think a person who plays a musical instrument is a good fit for our definition? Um, can, can I phone a friend? Sure, sure. Who are you going to call? I'm going to I'm going to call Bob. Oh, all right, Bob. Do you think do you think a, a person who plays musical instrument is a player? You have reached the voicemail, Bob. Ah, so you, I'll have to you, say you, yes. I think if you play a musical instrument, you're a player for our definition, though. Oh, for our definition. Looking at a hundred people surveyed, I got the three, so I'm going to say no. Okay, cool. So, old man Logan, do you think an actor? is a good definition for our version of player for player engagement. Uh, I would like to Sean P. Kelly this answer. It depends. That's fair. That's completely fair. All right, back to the definition panda. Do you think that a device that reproduces recorded material, such as video images or music, from a usually specified medium is a good definition for player for our purposes? Like a VCR player? Correct. DVD player? Correct. Blu-ray player? Correct. MP3 player? Correct. Which, you know, what was the most classic MP3 player that ever existed? There's the iPod. There's, there's the, the iPod. Zune. I feel like the, the Zune might be more popular. The Zune might be more popular. No, it's not. It's got like 300 more. songs on it. <laughs> yeah. I had the creative one that was even less popular. But, you know, creative made Sound Blaster and that, you know, meant sound. My favorite platform was Winamp. Sure, that, that whipped the llama's ass. It did. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, as much as I love players and all the players I named, I- I'm going to go with a no. Mm, I don't mm. think it is. For this definition. Sure, I, I totally agree with that, actually. Jerry. Yes. One actively involved, especially in a competitive field or process, a participant. Do you think that is a, a good definition for our version of player for player engagement? As much as I hate competitive gaming, I have to say I think that a participant is a good definition for a player in this case. So I'll say yes. He's grudgingly saying yes. <laughs> and old man Logan. A person, and especially a man, who has many lovers. Oh, uh, yeah. But the answer's no. Oh, okay, okay. No. In round one, it seems that a person who plays a game and one actively involved in a competitive field or process is what we're going to be pulling from for our version of player engagement. Agreed? Yes. Yes. Now let's move on to round two. But before we get to that, Phil. Yes. Have you seen any good media lately? Like, what is your favorite thing that you've watched? I'm currently binging the TV series Fringe. 
if you were going to recommend Fringe to anybody else, what would be the one thing that you would say that is a positive recommendation for Fringe? Oh, I would say if you liked X-Files, this is the post 9-11 X-Files, but I think it is a way better story than the X-Files mythology. Mm. You can see all the way into season one, the stuff they're setting up that's heading into season three. Like it is actually pretty well constructed and the number of hints the pacing of the mythology episodes versus the one-offs. I think it is a better version of X-Files in almost every way. Oh, very interesting. Controversial opinion, but I would actually say I would take Fringe over X-Files at this point. Interesting. Definitely. Let's move on to round two. It's time to find our best version of engagement for player engagement. I'm going to start with Old Man Logan. Involved in activity, occupied or busy. How do you feel that that fits our definition situation? I would use it. Okay, you would use it? Yes. Survey says... Jerry. Pledge to be married. Betrothed. How do you think that fits into our player engagement definition? Mm. In most games, probably not appropriate. In some of the games we've been in, who knows? Mm. But right now, I would say no. No, unfortunately. Okay, so that one's out. That one's thrown right to the curb. I'm sorry. Bill. Our definition panda. Greatly interested or committed how do you feel this this nestles in there uh yeah i like this one actually i like i like the feel of it i like the flavor i like the word committed Mm, so mm. i'm gonna say yes okay yeah let's get let's give that a ding then back to bachelor number one also known as old man logan involved especially in a hostile encounter can i buy a vial sure what what would you like to buy wait never mind i retract that so you've retracted your purchase of the vial What, what what do you think about this one I don't like it. I'm not fond of it. Okay, okay, fine. We'll, we'll throw that one right out. We'll put, put, kick it right to the curb. Jerry, what do you think about being partially embedded in a wall as part of this definition? I am going to buy a vowel, and my vowel is going to be, why? Yeah, why would we embed somebody in a wall for this definition? Why or in general. It, why is engagement being embedded in a wall? I don't know. It was part of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. That's where I pulled all these from. They are messed up. That I'm is go- kind of messed I'm up. I'm going to say, no. What oh. is no? <laughs> what is no? Nice. Well done. And Phil, last one. Being in gear or meshed? Do you think this fits into our version of player engagement? I like the word meshed in general. Mm -hmm. Um, In gear makes me think of like a car. Made me think that way too. Yeah. Like, you know, is this car in gear? I don't know. We just, you know, I don't do a lot of role-playing games with cars in them when I can avoid them. I I don't really like chase and movement rules and stuff like that for cars. I'm going to go with no. Seems fair after we did that exploratory play of gangbusters. And there's some car chase rules there. All right. I I just think maybe Phil doesn't like the idea of anybody being too chased. So for our round two, it was involved in an activity and greatly interested or committed. Those were the two definitions that we pulled for engagement. Before we get to the lightning round, our final round, Jerry, I hear you work in water treatment. What is the way that you can relate your water treatment job to role-playing games? A lot of times when you're out, you've got to do a lot of troubleshooting. And a lot of it is simply walking into something that you're not expecting and having to immediately assess everything that's going on all at once. And once you've seen that, you've then got to come up with a very quick solution because sometimes you don't have a lot of time to solve a problem before it becomes much, much bigger. That and you run around killing bacteria. So, you know, most role-playing games involve killing stuff. Do you loot their shit? It's now time for the lightning round. Phil, based upon what you've heard, what do you think is the best definition we've been able to come up with? Player engagement is the activities that you do in a game to get players involved and committed to what's going on in the story, what's going on in their character, and what's going on in the game. I think that's a pretty solid definition. What does everybody else think? I think that's good. I mean, there are games where you will partially embed somebody in a wall, so I think that also applies. <laughs> There's also games where you'll be pledged to be married in. So, I mean, I, mean I, I suppose it depends, right? Isn't that when you said it depends? I mean, if it's an elemental game, you may be engaged to a wall. You, you may be. But as Phil said, I think his definition is the best definition. Yes. yes. Survey says... Well, thank you for playing the definition game. We look forward to seeing you back here again at some point, potentially. Maybe not, because we might just throw this segment out and never use it again. But if we do, we hope that you will spay or neuter your players. Pets. Pets. How do you feel about player death at the table? (laughs) Depending on your game, it might be both. All definition taken right from the Merriam-Webster online dictionary. All right, guys. Thank you for indulging my silliness there. I appreciate that. That was fun. Yeah. So 
Now that we know what our definition of player engagement is, how do we get players to engage with our game? To break this down, we're going to look at getting players to engage with the following parts of the game. So, number one, mechanics. Those gamist elements which drive play outside of the natural flow of conversation. They come in two flavors, making decisions, engaging with a randomizer. Both impact the narrative. This includes primary and secondary mechanisms, skill checks, combats, things like that, as well as procedures. So just overall, the flow of the game, phases of the game, things like that. Next, we'll talk about the setting. The people, places, and extra elements that make up the world of the game. And next is tone, the general character or attitude of the game. Followed up with theme, an idea or set of ideas that reoccurs or pervades in the game. The next is extras. These are things like magic, history, cybernetics, politics, etc. All the things that cross a lot of the previous parts, but don't sit neatly into one place. And situation. This is the current events of the game causing the characters to take action. And finally, I think the player characters. These are the player's characters, and hopefully if you can engage with your character, you will be much more satisfied with the game that is being played. Now that we have this giant list of stuff to try and get the players to engage with, I'm not even going to try to break it all down myself and just ask my esteemed college the question. What are your best tips and tricks to help players engage with a bunch of this stuff? There are no esteemed colleagues here, so can you answer these questions instead? Yes, you can answer them all also. Right. All right, well, let's talk about mechanics. What are, what are some of your best tips and tricks to help with mechanics? Let's start with Phil. I, I think that like mid-campaign, right? In the beginning, your mechanics, right? You should just basically be reinforcing how the game mechanics work. But by mid-game, as players are getting really used to the mechanics and can start to kind of tune it out or lose interest, mixing it up by doing kind of different challenges with the mechanics or kind of messing with the rules a little, doing some novel things with it can spark some engagement by just giving the player something a little different. Like, for instance, I did it with you guys with that crisis pool. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we're going to bring it up. Yeah, we're playing Ox and we've done crisis pools before. They're usually just pools where the players roll to attack the dice and wear the dice down. And when you get rid of all the dice, crisis goes away. And I wanted to make this crisis pool for you guys discovering this machine. And so I assigned different dice for each of the machine parts. But also when you knocked out a particular die, I told you what that part of the machine did. It was really cool. I liked it a lot. Yeah. And it's just the kind of thing that like we've done tons of crisis pools in the game and it's fine. But now that like we're late in the game, like, is there something I can do every now and then to shake it up and create a moment at the table where you guys are like, ooh, what's going on here? I thought that that one actually was pretty successful. Bob? From the player's perspective, I think you should get familiar with the mechanics that are specific to your character. So anything that your character has to deal with on a session by session basis, you should get familiar with that stuff, learn it, and then make yourself cheat sheets of anything that you're not familiar with that you need to reinforce. And that will help keep you thinking about those bits going forward. Dos attaques. Dos attaques. Dos attaques, yes. It's from our D&D game, since people for- forgot that they had two attacks at level five, they started making cards themselves to attack twice. Yeah. Uh, Jerry? Uh, for me as a GM, I like to create simple encounters that allow the characters to use both their main attributes and sometimes the unique, but often useless or seldom used attributes fairly early in the game. I like to give them a chance to do the things they're supposed to be good at right off the bat. And for the initial one, I like to give them something a little simpler. While difficult challenges can be their own reward to some players, Others just enjoy seeing something they can easily win, so you have to mix it up a little bit. But I like the idea of, you're the fighter, so let's have a fight early on so you can show how cool you are being a fighter. Um, maybe your character took a level in cooking. Great, we're going to have some place where you get a chance to do some cooking and, and do something cool with it. But just give them the mechanics, let them engage their character's dice mechanics early on, kind of get it out of their system, but also teach them the game without having to worry about super big challenges. I like that right off the bat. I have nothing to add because I would have said any of those three things or all of those three things. So let's move on to the setting. Phil. So I think that when you know what your meta arc is, not that everyone has one. I like to have meta arcs in my settings. The big thing that's going on. Show of hands at the table. Raise your hands if you like meta arcs in your settings. That's, yeah, that's all, that's all Hans, four of us. All Hans, four unanimous. Of us. Yes, Hans, this is radio. That's why I could describe what we did afterwards. That's the point, Jerry. I could actually <laughs> describe it. So when you're building out your meta arc, take things from the characters' backgrounds and tie them into the meta arc. And I'm not talking about directly, like, put the character in the meta arc. You can do that. There's places for that. But you can also do things like tie a character from their background into the meta arc. Something that will eventually result in a scene where that character and some part of their background becomes an important part of the greater story. What about you, Bob? So I have an answer that kind of 
flows through a bunch of these. Sure, absolutely. Uh, from the player's point of view, sitting in the chair with setting and some of the other bits is try to come up with something that connects your character to the setting or the theme or the tone so that you're actively trying to put those two things together because A, that reinforces it and B, it helps out your GM a lot. Mm-hmm. Jerry. As a GM, I like to find things players are interested in about the setting itself and put more of those in the adventure or just create things that fit the players and characters' interests. If the character's a cook, have a description of the foods every time they go to a new town. If they're a grav racer, Make sure there's some racetracks or new vehicles or gear in places they visit so they get a chance to see it. Doesn't have to be overpowering or overwhelming. You just be like, this town has a really cool, you know, racetrack or this town, you see a vehicle over there that you've been looking for for a while and you can talk to somebody about it, but it gets them back involved with interacting with the adventure. And to be honest with the setting, it also gives you a chance to reintroduce other things that reinforce your story. Nice. I will say, listen to our slice of life episode to pull a bunch of the stuff that we're talking about tips and tricks for getting these things into your game. Because if you have those slice of life scenes, those are the times that you can really hit some of those um, not impactful, important moments to also broaden out your characters and the setting itself. I love when we walk into the high school and Phil asks us about the, the, what does the math classroom look like? That's setting. When there's wind blowing all over the place and uh, we get the, the description of the school and how it's being affected, like cans being knocked out in the courtyard, that means we have a courtyard. Didn't know that before, right? Mm-hmm. These are all things that create setting while also telling the story that's going on. I like when you mix beats like that too. Bob was talking about mixing mixing these things inside of a beat or inside of a, a moment. Let's talk about tone. I'm going to start with uh, Bob this time. You got one for tone? Just lean into it. It's pretty much all these things yeah, for players I mean, are the yeah. same, right? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. Well, Phil, what about you? Tone. Tone is something I think you have to set at session zero, right? I I actually do it right in cats, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the T in cats is tone. I think at session zero, you're getting that initial buy-in that we all agree that this is the tone. But I think it's important that as the story goes on, as your campaign goes on, it's entirely possible the tone of your game will change because the more that you play the game and the more you're kind of informed about what's going on in the game, plus informed of your own actions and the effect of your actions in the course of the game, your tone actually can change. And if you're still trying to play the original session zero tone, but really the group, you know, through play has moved the tone into another place, it's a good point from time to time to kind of check to see if those two are in alignment. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, figure out which side you want to jump to. Like, are we changing the tone to kind of match the players? Or are we having a talk about trying to get back to our original tone. So either is a good answer. Yeah. So there's the conversation of tone, like as we're playing to get your players to re-engage with the tone of the game, right. Or Mm -hmm. to all agree to switch the tone of the game. Yeah. Because sometimes you can hit like a, you can hit like a story beat that just where the tone's darker, Mm -hmm. but is that really where you want the game to stay? Or do you want the game to kind of bounce back to its original tone? Yeah, I actually brought this up a bunch of times during our Ox game. Yeah. When we started doing things, I'm like, I don't think this is the game that we decided that we were playing. Correct. Because it was throwing me off and I wasn't having as much fun. So I was like, I don't know if this is what we wanted to do. Yeah, and in fact, actually, once we had, we had a really good candid discussion about it, I was like, cool, let's tie off the story that's causing this tonal shift and let's get on, like, let's move on so that we can kind of go back to what we all like more. I agree with that. Uh, Jerry, what about you? Well, this for me can be the toughest. Tone buy-in for the players, and it can easily be lost or can be too heavy-handed. So I don't know a quick fix for this, but I think that what you guys are saying is kind of the best thing is talk about it, especially if you feel it's being lost, or if as a GM or a player, you feel it's too overwhelming for what you want to do right now. Tone is weird, right? Like getting engagement from tone, like aside from the session zero discussion and the discussions between games, those are pretty much the only ways to get player buy-in for tone, unless... Unless, I suppose as a game master, if you're really hitting the tone of the game in your scenes and your moments, right? Because tone is a subtext. If, mm-hmm. Does that seem right? Tone is a subtext? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, subtext is sometimes... So tone can be like, this game is gritty. Subtext could be like, all corporations are evil. Sure. Like, they're not exactly the same. Like, subtext is subtext is like a message that you're trying to that you're trying to like put into the game. Like if you're using Jason Pitt's pillars, yeah, right? Yeah. Subtext is like the hidden message you're, of the you're game. You're right. I, uh, that is not, you're, you're right. My, my and, use of subtext is the wrong word. Tone is like, how are we describing things? How is like the general flow of the story, outcomes of the story and stuff like that? How is that influenced by the tone of the game? And that's important to talk to the players about what kind of tone you want. I've talked before about trying to run superhero games where you've got one person who's trying to play MCU, one person who's trying to play 
80s four color comics and a third person who wants to play gritty, you know, 90s Wolverine. And if you've got three different tones going on, you're going to have a tough time running scenarios. Let me expand upon that. You're not wrong yeah. about that being tone, but it highlights a bigger problem in superhero games that we've all known about fantasy games for a while mm -hmm. is that there is no such thing as a superhero game. Correct. That superhero games, much like fantasy games, come in many, many slivers of flavors. Yeah. Everybody needs to pick the same one. Mm -hmm. Like if we're going to have a... Um, shared vision. Yeah, shared vision, a shared experience in the game. If I say, oh, we're playing a fantasy game, I have told you very little about the game we're playing. Correct. Same thing. If I tell you we're playing a superheroes game, just like you said, what are we playing four color? Are we playing golden age? Are we playing steel age? You know, nineties, we all got vests, guns, and you know, pouches, all the pouches and tiny feet. That's the life field role-playing game. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite techniques I've seen for helping reinforce tone at the table. And I think this can help players buy into the tone that's going on is from Swords Without Master, where you have the card right on the table that tells you what tone you're playing. Oh, yeah. If, if you're looking for a way to help reinforce the tone at your table or get players to like buy into the tone or at least give them a, a touchstone for the tone, put a card on the table that says the tone on it. In Swords Without Master, like that's really good because there are two tones. Yes. We are playing one, we are playing the light tone or the dark tone, and it's great. Grim and I, or jovial. One of my favorite props ever is my tone card that I made for Swords Without Master, which is two stills from the movie Fire and Ice. The dark tone is the one where he's up on the hill, the mm -hmm. silhouette of, mm -hmm. uh, I forget what that character's name is. Wolf. The jovial one is the one where it's like he's got the crazed kill face and the weapons in hand as he's charging into battle. I just, one, I love that prop. But two, it's really good in Swords because there are just two tones. Yes. If you're playing a game that either has multiple tones or complex tone, you've got to kind of figure out a way to put that mm -hmm. on like a card in front of everybody. Mm -hmm. If we're session zeroing, right, we've talked about the tones yeah. of our game, then the tone card is a mnemonic reminder sure. of what that means. So if you get outside of the tone, somebody can just tap it. Yeah. And then it's already something we've all agreed to. So every player should have already engaged with, like, is trying to engage with that mm -hmm. thing. You can also reinforce tone uh, at the table with music, with lighting. Yep. Mm -hmm. One of the things I, when we played Vampire back in the day, I would never run vampire if the sun was up. Even in the summer, we'd have to wait till like 930 at night before we could start playing vampire. Because for me, it wrecked the tone. If you're trying to talk about vampire and light is streaming through the curtains, we always played vampire at night. Just helps to kind of set that tone. All right, let's move on to themes. Jerry, tell me about how you would go about getting player engagement via theme. I like recurring themes. And I like to bring them back into the game from time to time to remind the players what we're doing. And this could be something as obvious as the villains obviously using it as their main plot. But it could also be something more subtle, like a conversation nearby NPCs are having, or even some guidance from a patron where they give you a suggestion or send you on a mission that reinforces the theme without just hitting the players over the head with it all the time. You can stick it into the story in different ways, and that allows the players to interact with it in the way that they want to as well. Bill? I think one of the things that's important to think about theme is theme can be reinforced not only through NPCs, but it can be reinforced by every little object or just the way people conduct their lives. So like, for instance, in Hydro Hackers, right, this theme of water scarcity, there are a lot of little things that happen in, like when I describe the background or even in the text when it talks about things about how scarce water is. Just little things like, you wouldn't just uh, turn on a faucet somewhere. Like you wouldn't go to somebody's house and just, you know, hey, can I grab a glass of water? That's their water ration. There are now new conventions about you probably bring your water with you to somebody's house. Like if you're coming for dinner, you probably bring, a, you know, your own personal water jug and bring it to the table because you wouldn't impose unless your guest, you know, unless your host told you, please come over for dinner. I'm supplying all the water for tonight. That would be like a pretty luxurious... Very. Yeah. Yep. So NPCs are a great vehicle for it. But think about, do doors open differently? Do people greet each other differently? Is a convenience store still look the same? Mm -hmm. Those things, because those will, as you're describing things to players, will start enforcing things like, oh, water's super scarce. They keep the water bottles behind the armored glass in the 7-Eleven. For D&D and Al-Kadim, I thought that the Al-Kadim setting did a good job with that, with the recurring themes of things like hospitality, the salt ritual, people making coffee, 
the greetings that they always had about fate, because fate was a big theme of the of the game. Every adventure started with it. Characters meeting each other talked about fate. It was a good way to get it in subtly, but also kept reinforcing the culture of the world. So that was really a lot of fun. Same kind of thing. To tag on the Bob's point that he had earlier about mixing things up, like if I can tie giving some sort of in-game currency or mechanical bonus to my players for playing to the themes. That's where I would go for helping get player engagement mm-hmm. for the themes of the game. I'm going to loop us back to the slice of life thing. Mm-hmm. As a player, think about what the themes are of the game. And then when your scene comes up, give yourself a moment of slice of life. Like I'm doing my thing that I do every day. I get up and I check the scream sheets to see, you know, what kind of uh, a bangers were shooting up the neighborhood last night in my cyberpunk game you know Mm -hmm. give yourself those moments to describe what's going on and what you're doing to help you latch onto those themes what do you guys think are some of the themes of our children of the shroud game uh phil so first of all i go with themes based off of the genres right so there is uh, i think one of our themes from the magical side is mystery yes there are magical mysteries that have to be solved. There are magical problems that need to be fixed. Yeah, they're just mysteries everywhere. Yeah, sometimes they're mysteries, and sometimes they're going to just be problems. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the mystery reveals a problem. So that, that for me, is one theme. Uh, another theme is that uh, you have a real mundane life that you have to attend to. So duality? Not only duality, but like... Also not paying lip service. Like we could easily play this game where, oh, you go to high school, class is over. Now you're, you know, off to, you know, the Guardians Club and we're going to go do like we're just doing magic for the rest of the day. But we've put actual roles on the high school side Mm -hmm. and there are going to be, you know, there will eventually later be consequences like you stayed out too late. You're like now you've got a, you know, trait on the table against you. For dealing with your mundane shit because you're tired or you're secretly busted up and you're hiding it in class that kind of thing yeah being being concussed will definitely affect your <laughs> educational yeah, output exactly so i think one of the themes is like you do have a mundane life to live with jerry's done a good job t is actually trying to repair some of his mundane life that he damaged when he became magical i think it's very cool when the game mechanics and especially the character sheet reflect the themes of the game. Our character sheet mm-hmm. does that because we have school veil magic. Yep. Those three things created kind of a duality in our, in our game. And the veil part is like the mid, the midpoint. Like it's, it, cover, it covers both for us because we're in high school. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very fascinating. I think that is a place to hit if you're trying to get some player engagement. Like, oh, if I play to these things, I will be more competent in the game, which will make me more invested in the game. But then I can also play the story stuff with my relationships and whatnot that are on there to get advantages, but also will create interesting stories at the table. It's one of the things I really, really enjoy about Cortex Prime over, say, something like Savage World or Fate is that you tune your mechanical blocks for that game to exactly the game that you're looking for. You're not fitting kind of the stock set of rules to your setting. You're, you're going in and saying... It's not even like I'm changing the skill list. You're like, I don't even want to use skills mm-hmm. for this game. I'm going to use like affiliations and relationships because those are theme enforcing for my game. Like, huh. I think it's really neat. I think it allows you a greater specificity. Could I make a generic usable version of Cortex that played something like Fate Core? I absolutely could. But would I? No, 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 no. Like. The act of going through picking those mods, especially the character block, like the prime sets, like so much reinforcement you can put into your game mechanically by being thoughtful about those uh, sets. Yeah, and if you're a player and you're just like looking at these things, it helps you connect to whatever's happening, I think. I played a ton of Dungeons and Dragons. There's not a lot of great rules in there to necessarily connect to the setting or the people in the setting. Even when I'm like modifying things, using mods that people have invented for the game, there's no affiliations or npc relationship rules necessarily for dungeons and dragons where i'm like actually tied to a person aside from just like we'll just role play it right yeah like there's actual mechanics in there and you don't need that stuff in a game to enjoy it i like having that stuff in a game it makes it more enjoyable for me but i like playing like games you and i share that same trait when i look at like a game says it does this and then i look at the mechanics and the mechanics also do that that makes my heart sing. Like, can I play a game that doesn't couple those two together tightly? Sure, it's fine. 
played many games like that, but when it happens, when they dovetail like that really nicely, I personally wind up having a really good experience around it. And like Chris said, if the character sheet also brings that stuff to the forefront, and I'm, I want to say it was in Nominee, had two different sides to the character sheet. Was it in Nominee? Might be. One side was the, was the, like the mortal and one. Oh yeah. Was, yeah. Um, Cause you had a mortal part, part-time gods of fate, wasn't it? Or part-time gods. We oh. did that on part-time gods too. We have a little bit of that going with our children of the Shroud yeah. game. I like stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. If you as a player look at your character sheet and that stuff stands out, it's readily apparent mm-hmm. that helps to reinforce. All I that. actually love really a good character impressive. sheet. Yeah. Like I, what, there are times I, and I know Jerry's done this too. I will peruse a game. And one of the first things I'll go do is look at the character sheet mm-hmm. because a lot of times when you look at the character sheet, you can be like, oh, not only do I understand some mechanical things about this game, but the way it's laid out or just the way it's drawn. Like when you see, like the first time you see the Numenera character sheet, you're like, a lot of shit going on in this character sheet. You'd think so, but it's not as much as you think it is. Mechanically, it winds up not being, there's a lot of drawing yeah. to it. But then when you like learn more about Numenera, you're like... And this this thematically is like the correct character sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we are very much dovetailing into the character side of stuff here, which mm-hmm. is fine. I have no problem with that. Sure, sure. Because characters are like character sheet. What is my character in this in the setting? How does my character relate to the themes? I guess to just stay off the path for a second, when we talk about our different foci, right? Our different layers, mm-hmm. levels, yeah. whatever the hell we call it, foci engagement occurs at each one of those. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. It is perfectly fine for the trappings of your game to engage the player, the story to engage both the player and the character, right? Because you may get caught up at both levels in that. Like all those things are happening. You might be getting engaged into different things from different places. Like my character foci isn't really going to care about the mechanics of the game, but player fill, the player foci like when I see cool mechanics at the table, I'm excited. That's interesting because yeah. I'm like, if my character can't do the thing that I want them to do mechanically, then I'm less engaged with the game. Sure. Because you can't dig into your character deeper. Correct. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, like if my character, let's just go on the assumption, my character can do all their normal stuff. But if I see something novel or interesting in rules, like for instance, the travel rules for Forbidden Lands, I'll be honest, Forbidden Lands is a pretty generic fantasy game, but those travel rules excited the hell out of the GM in me mm-hmm. just because I was like, oh, I've not really played a game where travel was interesting, okay. like important and interesting. Sure. So much so that we never hand waved travel nope. in like the 48 sessions we played that game. If you needed to go somewhere, we got out the maps and you got on your horse. We, you didn't even have horses for a while, yeah. but it was interesting. And as a player, as a character, whatever, I don't know. But as a player, I was like, shit is interesting. Roll some dice. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I always, so to me, like, those are like the extra pieces in a game too. Like they're mechanics, mm-hmm. but they're more than that. Right. Yeah. They don't like fit neatly into one thing. Sure. I mean, in, in the case of Forbidden Lands, they were very much the mechanics. Of the sure. Game. Yeah. Like if we go to extra pieces, let me bring up Dread and the Jenga Tower. Yeah, right. You want to, you wanna, you, I mean, it's a mechanic, but it's a visual thing. It's, yep. it you, creates tension. You want some, you want some engagement? Take a block <laughs> from that tower. Yeah. You are fucking engaged. Yeah, yeah. And then like history of a setting. Like if you read the history, it can, it can help you. Oh, hundred percent. A ton of ways to get, to get there. Any of those extra mechanics like magic, magic is a system usually in a game. And while it is a mechanic, it is usually also more than that. If it's in the game, right? Like mm-hmm. it's part of the, part of the economy or the life of this, the setting. One that absolutely, and it doesn't occur in all games for me. The first time I saw the cover of Underground and the character on the cover, I was like, I want to know everything about this game. Yeah. Like I took one look. I was like, I have never seen anything look like this before. And if you go into that book, which honestly, I think that's layout. And I think that book is ahead of its time. The ephemera, the artwork that's just in there. There's just like in the opening splash pages, there's a page where, and it's actual photography, it's not illustration, of the amended, the extra uh, constitutional amendments. There's like a handgun. There's a discharge letter from the contract firm that the character that they're going to tell the story about in a few pages is from. And as you just flip the pages and you see like there's a propaganda manifesto and all this stuff, and you're just like, 
it's drawing you in. It's creating a level of engagement where you're like, I, I want to know what this world's about. Like, what the hell is this? I think artwork makes a big difference if you get a really good cover art or something. I've talked before about the original Warhammer fantasy role-playing game, the first edition. When you see that cover, it instantly tells you what that game is about. Hmm? Like, you don't have to explain to anybody what this world is going to be like. Um, Eberron City of, uh, City of Towers, Sharon City of Towers, same kind of thing. Whereas the flip side of that, as much as I love 5th edition D&D, there is no artwork in any of those rule books that makes me want to play that game. It's after, after I play the game, I like it. But looking at the artwork, none of it's dynamic. None of it's super interesting. None of it is proportioned properly. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there that just artwork ha- is a great part of the extra pieces that pull you out. Man, layout can do a lot for a game. And yeah. Oh. All the stuff that you're talking about for Underground, it is all tone and theme reinforcing. Yeah. Too. Mm-hmm. Aside 100%. from being this extra stuff, this doesn't cover this extra stuff. Oh. Usually covers more than one topic. Sure. I'll even throw one further because it actually had very little to do with the game. Going back to Underground, at one point they produced an actual little mini newspaper. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, the other thing they did for Gen Con one year, they had uh, free speech applications. Hmm. <laughs> Like it was a pad. It wasn't actually used in the game or anything, but they just, they, they gave them away at Gen Con and it was just kind of, a, again, genre reinforcing piece to it. Two games that did that in the early days, Traveler, one of the little black books that they put out was just like 101 charts. And it was, um, your character sheet as an actual like identity card, yes. planetary sheets, your discharge papers from the military, all stuff you could print out and have on the table to kind of make your character, which was, we're talking 1979, I think. Somewhere there's like a fucking traveler player. They can look at that fucking string of numbers and be like, oh, that's a good character. I knew it. It's Jerry. It's, Jerry, it's Jerry. Jerry raised his hand. It's, it's hexadecimal. It's I know. Uh, it's got letters over numbers. It must yeah. be good. But knowing the, the, the actual the, positions yeah. of all that shit. The, the other thing that was important was Call of Cthulhu. For a long time, you could get the Miskatonic University Graduates Kit, which gave you a map of the campus, a little Go Cephalopods uh, flag, your student ID, stickers all this sort of stuff that you could fill your, your student your student application form lists of all your classes all stuff that you could use which none of which ever appears in any of the games but just as a prop it inspired the players to do things like what did your character do while you were there moving to a different game yeah. like blades in the dark has politics because of the the chart like you were politically moving sure. up the up the the scale okay. now it is a mechanic in the game it is story for the game it is setting for the game it just covers so much stuff because as soon as you drop that thing with these different organizations on the table and you're like, move up the chart, it creates a whole interesting play space it, it and also, can engage players by looking at it. It also creates the end game. It does create the end game. So it creates pacing too. Yeah. As a player, I can look at it and be like, cool, we're going to go after this group or this group. Let's find out about them. And then that engages us to the, to the next set of things. Or when the GM turns around and is like, oh, by the way, your heist last week, you inadvertently like Let me drop this tier guys four off. down yeah. on the table. Like, oh, you're screwed. Yeah. Extras cover a lot of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. the, the next one, let's talk about situation. So situation going from uh, Jason Pitt's version of this is like, what's going on, right? What do you do? Yeah, what do you do? So Phil. Situation, right, is the thing that players do in the game. This is going to sound like the simplest, dumbest piece of advice, but I'm telling you, People mess this up. All the time. You need to make sure that people actually want to do what the situation of this game is in the length of what you're going to run. If your game is about solving mysteries and people want to play this game, but they don't particularly like solving mysteries, like you have a problem. Why are you playing that game? Really? Well, you might play it once and be like, oh yeah, that was fun mystery to solve only to find out. Oh, by the way, that's what every session of this game is like. That cake don't bake. Well, it might not. Right now, we're getting ready. We're about finished with our Knights Black Agents game. We're getting ready to start a campaign in Cyberpunk Red. And the thing that I'm actually having the biggest challenge with that I have to talk to the players about is what is the situation of this game? Because mm-hmm. Cyberpunk Red is not the um, sprawl. The sprawl right. is like hyper-focused, right? You mm-hmm. are a group of people who do jobs And we're going to play out the job framework and stuff like that. Cyberpunk Red, you definitely can do that, right? You can be a group of mercenaries who do jobs for corporations or against corporations, whatever. But there's also like 50 other things you can do in this game. There's no focus for it. There's a a wide open cyberpunk. Yeah, there's no focus. There's a cyberpunk setting. There's cyberpunk rules. There's a whole host of character options. But you got to provide a situation. Mm-hmm. And they give you some suggestions. They have a nice thing in the book where they have like, like, here are some ideas. Like you could be a rock band. 
traveling around, going gig to gig. You could be a trauma team unit, like rescuing the rich and famous from, you know, their follies and all of that. But boy, if you don't get buy-in for what the main situation of this game is, it's going to have problems. And to Chris's point about Ox a couple weeks ago, the story we were telling stopped doing what the established main situation of, of the game was. And because of that, Chris wasn't enjoying it. We stopped solving scientific mysteries. And so immediately as we closed out that story, I dumped you into a scientific mystery to get back to our real situation. When we, we did that one time before in that game, when we did the legal stuff. Yeah. And that was fine because it was like two sessions, yeah. maybe three. And it was a story that was in and out and done. I'm like, that was a nice change of pace. Then I just didn't want to do it again. I just wanted to go yeah, back. Yeah, no, it was fine. Thing. I've seen this happen when players aren't invested. I've talked before. I ran a 10-year Mechton campaign that was like once a month or so. And the problem is that this was an anime role-playing game, one of the first ones. And very early on, the players realized that mechs were a problem. Being in a mech, if you weren't a super mech pilot, was not fun. So very quickly, they just stopped getting in mechs altogether. So my Mechton campaign, the mechs became a backdrop. That's a problem with the rules, not the... Yeah, it is. But I very quickly figured out that what they wanted to do was play anime action heroes. And so my original situation for the game that was going to be, we're all mech, mech jocks, I just shifted over to we're all anime heroes. And they had a good time playing it. Let's break this down. Let's yeah. break down what actually happened here. So <laughs> yeah. the engagement wasn't there for the mech piloting because the mechanics weren't there to help support the mech piloting of the game. It was. It was not there to support the mech piloting and anything else. Well, that's what I mean. Like if you have characters that can be anything, yep. the mechanics did not support playing mech pilots. Correct. First of all, I think this is a fundamental challenge in almost every mech game is either you are all in mechs, mm -hmm. in which case you've resolved the problem because everybody's driving around in a mech and it's fine. But if you got somebody in a mech and people who aren't, are the mechanics leveled so that the people who aren't in there have an equal contribution to the story? Yes. And if they don't, then it's an arms race problem where everybody needs to be in a mech for this game to be fun. And, you know, you get some weird fixes for that. Palladium took a very strange fix to that problem. Mega damage, right? Like they were like, oh... When they did it for Robotech, it was interesting. They're like, oh, yeah, there are, like, there are some rockets and stuff that like, people can shoot at mechs and it's fine. When you get to Rifts and they're like, oh, this pistol does 1d4 mega damage. Like, you pull that thing out in a bar. Like, you vaporize half a bar and blow out the wall. It's, yeah. You're all over the place. Two games have made a fix on that. Heavy Gear has a, has a good system where you can be doing all sorts of stuff while the mechs are going on. Mm-hmm. Of all things, Genesis did a good job with this with Star Wars, where you could have people piloting starships, shooting from starships, but everybody else on the ship could be doing other things that mm -hmm. made the space battle interest. They'd be fixing things, they could be navigating, they could be talking to people, they could be running communications. Everybody on the ship got to do something because they designed the game that way. The one game that keeps coming up over and over again now that we're on this tangent of like mech games that I really want to get my hands on and read is Lancer. Lancer. Everybody talks about it as being like the best mech game that exists right now in the, in the RPG space. I will have to get it and read it and see if it's any good. I think I'm pretty sure I have it. I think yeah. so too. I think I got it in some bundle. I actually just got as a complete aside, 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 uh, I just got Salvage uh, Union. I just got the early release uh, set of rules for it. And that's a mech game where you are scavenging for parts and stuff for your community that's out, cool. out in a wasteland. That sounds like fun. It, it looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I have a couple of Lancer things, Chris, we can look at. Oh, I would love to read that game. Okay, okay, let's talk about the last thing, which is characters. Like, this is the thing. Like, how do you get the players to engage with the characters? If they engage with the characters, they're probably going to be good for the most part. Mm -hmm. Jerry, why don't you go first? I would say just tie something into their backgrounds or find their likes or dislikes. Whatever you've got, whatever the players give you, grab onto it and hold onto it. You even tied into their goals if they give them to you. Sorry, Chris, for that. Yeah, it's fine. He's talking about our D&D game where I, I had to actually like, like session 13. I'm like, I don't know what you want to do, Jerry. I keep giving you like hook after hook after hook and you're not taking anything. By, 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 by like session four, my character's entire personality, goals, likes, dislikes, and everything else had completely changed from what I started with. I was just along for the ride. I had absolutely no end game or motivations for the character. It was very tough. And I kept trying. You kept trying. We, we eventually had to talk about it and, and that's what we did. We talked about it and we came up with some ideas. So. And now I got to pull out the story where he is, he found his uh, other dead body from the alternate timeline and merged with it. So now he has all his memories from his past life. There you go. Which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that makes a lot more sense and sounds less zany if you actually know the story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just, nah, it's, you know, 
I, I don't know. I've been in enough role playing games where it's just like, yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, but you know me, I can't do anything unless I set it up, set it up to pay it off. I don't know. <laughs> I think I think part of the fun part is the character that we bumped into who turned out to be my other previous life's ex wife, and I don't remember any part of her, but I'm talking to her all about the person I married later on. Yeah, that was rough for her. That was a, that was an interesting. She's story. like 107. Yeah. Phil, what about you? Jerry touched on background, but I'm going to talk about in play. I think if you want to help build player engagement, you got to find things that the players, like little things that the players put out there and reincorporate them. Just little things I've picked up, like your character goes and gets everybody coffee from time to time and other people sometimes get you coffee. And Mm -hmm. so pulling that back in so that your character feels like a real part of the world. Yeah. Backgrounds are good, but backgrounds aren't play. You got to get it into play. To really hammer it home. I mean, Gunny constantly being worried about his mom in the store. That's mm-hmm. good. I like Which that. is good. But Gunny's mom talking to him as he's getting ready for school, like, hey, please make sure you're home yep. because we have a shipment coming. That helps like in game to kind of reinforce that. Like that was yeah. your setup. Your setup was like, oh, I helped my mom at the store. The reinforcement of that is I make sure it comes at you in game. Uh, let's give Bob credit for reincorporating that on top of that. Cause there were multiple times in that game where it's like, I got to get home. Yeah. So yeah. like that is called being a player engaging properly. I will tell you had the game ended differently. Had we not just done the exposition dump kind of closed up that story and then switched to our second story. I was going to give your mom a trait of bad back because you didn't get home in time. Like I was going to put a D6 on it and just have her kind of walking around like, oh. I I was actually going to lean that way myself. Like, oh, all of the shenanigans that just happened, I'm late getting to the store. So mom had to. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to do it at first, but since we were closing off that story, and again, I really wanted story two to be about kind of transitioning you. I was like, you know what? I don't really need to lean into this, but I had things set up with Chris potentially having to get to the extra credit thing, you getting home on time. Like there were some additional pressures I could have engaged in the like tail end of that story, but it felt like after we got through the exposition dump, I was like, man, I think we're good. Let's, let's actually move to a new part of like a new chunk of story. So as the player, I think one of the best things that you can do is make an effort. And what I mean by that is engage with other characters, whether it's a PC or an NPC, Mm -hmm make the effort to engage with one of the other characters because once you start having conversations and interacting with these people, more things are going to come out. They're going to ask you questions. You're going to get into a dialogue, a back and forth, and that's going to bring things up. Mm -hmm. And you can use that to be like, oh, okay, I think I'm very interested in this particular thing that I put in my background or this thing that's on my character sheet. If you put the effort in, then you're way more likely to find something that's going to help with the engagement. So Chris's public access game, one of the mechanics in public access is you clear conditions by reminiscing with one of the other characters about something you were interested in. So we were on this mystery and we'd moved this washer machine out of the way and this flood of rats poured over us. I actually didn't roll well and I picked up a condition unnerved and I basically just bolted from the basement. <laughs> Like I was outside the house and one of the other characters came out. I think it was Drew's character. And I was like, oh, this will be a good time to actually engage some mechanics here. But I want to clear this and I want to engage it. And you have to engage another player. So I started telling him about how I got freaked out reading Choose Your Own Adventure books, which was one of my character's interests, that I read a Choose Your Own Adventure book mystery where this happened to the, you know, when I was reading it as a kid and it freaked me out. And so having it happen freaked me out. And then Drew was like really empathetic and was like, no, no, I don't think it's unreasonable that you ran away from a flood of rats. And the mechanics facilitated me making that connection to another player, which then just one helps mechanically, but two, and now Drew and I've had this like moment in the game. The thing about that game to me that made <coughs> the characters go from being not a group to being a group was earlier when you were making your characters and it was things from your corner. Because everybody has to pick a thing that they think is from everybody else's corner. After we did that, three of them for each person, four of them for each person, we knew who those characters were so much better than we did before that. In fact, I knew my character better because a couple of the things that got picked for me weren't things I would have brought. But once they got named, I was like, oh, actually, I think my character, like, I got somebody picked for me. um, Microphones. A microphone and a guitar. And then I was like. 
oh, I think I was like some sort of like wannabe musician. But then when we got to the microphone part, I was like, this is 2004. Podcasts are just about to be invented. I was like, oh, I think I'm, I want to like, I think I want to try to do a podcast about us, like trying to solve this mystery about the TV station. That was not a thing I had planned for my character, but like during character creation, I was like, oh, I'm going to lean right into this. Like somebody picked this for me. I'm going to find a way to make this work in the game. It was cool. Yeah. And every character's got stuff like that. Now, yeah. Which is neat. I, I was surprised at how effective it was at making everybody. Cause at the end of that session, people are like, I, these characters are real people. Like everybody said that, like that was like the, one of the stars was like, oh, yeah. all these characters, they feel like real characters already. Like after two hours of play, I figured out my underlying trauma stuff and that actually, cause I, I have pulled a portion of it from my own past and I was like, okay, well <laughs> I know how this works cause I knew what it did to me. So I know how this is going to work for this character. All that game does is draw stuff about characters. The, the yeah. night move and the day move, just, just to get on this tangent for a second. If you trigger one of those moves, it's like, tell me what you're afraid of. And yeah. then I will give you a choice to either confront it and deal with the consequence or run away from it. Or if it's the night move, tell me what you're afraid of and I'll tell you how it's worse. Nice. So I don't get to tell you what you're afraid of. You tell me what you're afraid mm -hmm. of and then I interpret situation. But that tells you stuff about the characters. Those kind of mechanics, the, the lesson is, is like when you can, as a character... As a player at the table, tell somebody else, like, you probably have this thing in your character. Is that okay? That gives you engagement with their character. That gives them a different idea for their character that they may not have had before. And you have a ton of more material to work with at that point. The fate thing where everybody is telling everybody else a thing about... Like, about the, the book that you that you were in, in together kind of thing. Another great version yeah. for how to get engagement between players and also for their characters. The bonds in Dungeon, Dungeon World... World. Mm -hmm. The fill-in-the-blank yes. ones, those are fantastic. Yeah, all those mechanics are great for, for getting engagement from, from each other, especially if you have passive players at your table, how to get engaged with those passive players. Yeah. Yep. Uh, is there anything else anybody wants to bring up about this topic? I did, actually. Um, I know because we talked about this at the end of our play session, but I wanted to put it in here. So when it comes to engagement, there are a couple ways to do this. One way to do it is just kind of read the table listen to what your players are kind of gravitating towards and snatch those things up. If that's the thing they're interested in, that's the thing I'm going to use to create engagement. The other way is I call it the wet spaghetti technique, which is mm -hmm. just throw some stuff out there, right? Just randomly throw some stuff out and see what sticks. And that's how we got to Kaylee's character, which was, I threw out a thing at Jerry completely blind that I was like, oh, your mom set up a date for you with this girl from Rochester. And then he was like, cool, I'll do it. And I'm like, interesting. Mm -hmm. And then when we did the uh, thing where you're telling Sergey about it and you describe it as really positive, I didn't know. Like you could have been like, oh, that, does, that date was a disaster. And I'd have been like, eh, psh, toss it. But you were like, oh no, it was a really fun date. We had a good time. And I'm like, cool, grabbing that. I'm pulling it in like that piece of spaghetti stuck to the wall. Kaylee now is going to become a character and we're definitely going to see her in the game because Jerry engaged in a random piece. I threw at him. You two, on the other hand, showed up and were like, bam, here's some shit about my character. I got a dead girlfriend's magic in my chest. My dad's axe showed up. I have no idea why. And I'm like, all right, thanks. Like pick those things up. And I'm like, cool. I'm going to just go ahead and use these. But Jerry didn't. So I'm like throwing shit at Jerry. Mm -hmm. And when it sticks, I'm like, cool, we're using it. So there are two approaches for how to make that stuff happen. So you were saying the listen as a game master to the players. Players should do that too, to the other players oh, and the absolutely. game master, oh, yeah. right? Like, especially the other players. That's how you build group cohesion. That's why the games that we've been playing so much lately, I've been having so much fun with, because that is a thing that happens every session now like multiple times yeah. is players picking up on what other players are doing and then engaging with the stuff that they find interesting yeah. so it's not just a game master skill it's a player skill too that you should mm -hmm. all pick up it's one of the things that i just don't understand at game tables when it's five players just waiting for the game master to do something mm -hmm. and the players don't do anything together i'm like i don't understand what's going on well, and yeah. then you wind up you're just throwing shit out at the table like i don't know does anybody like anybody want to pick up on this like mm -hmm. i got some like i'm throwing some shit out here you guys like it you like it like you're desperately looking for the moment where they're like oh that's cool oh it is okay cool we're gonna you know yep cool i'm gonna do a bunch more with that but yeah you're right like it's tough players but, help your game masters engage mm -hmm. with the other players yeah well and this is where stars and wishes really comes to uh help out is wishes is 
basically love lettering the things that you're going to engage with. We did our stars and wishes for our first public access. And the thing I asked Chris was like, I would like to do some flashbacks to how these guys all decided to come to this house for this summer and solve mysteries. Vignettes of like, what was I doing? Like when I was like, oh, you know what? We should rent a house for the summer kind of things. Because I'm now very much invested in my character and everybody else's. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of learn how we all became connected to each other. There's also a thing about becoming engaged with what the other players are doing. In Chris's game, Bob's character is a prince. And we went back to his homeland just to kind of negotiate a treaty. And in the middle of it, we found out about this great threat to his family and his people. And so, of course, Bob's character's like, I'm going to run off and take care of this. The rest of you guys go back home. And the rest of the players, of course, jumped right in with, well, we're going to tag along and do this. But it could have been one of these, your story's over. But as soon as Bob's character decided, I'm going to, well, Bob decided, I'm going to follow this plot hook. The other players immediately found reasons to immediately tag along. I mean, first of all, the, like you're part of our team, but also we like these people find the things that we like and then immediately come up with a reason to follow Bob's lead. Chris is 50-50 on that one. He did that once before and it didn't work. Which game are we talking Airy about? Peaks. Bob's yeah. going to go off to the war. We're all going with Bob because we're friends with him. Yeah. This story stopped being Airy Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I only I tease you about I should have just but... fast forwarded through that, which was what we did eventually. Yeah, it was fine. Mm -hmm. I had every intention when I said that of like, I'm going to put this character down. I'll play somebody else, but this character needs <laughs> to go do this thing. And everybody's like, we'll come with you. I'm like, okay. It's cool. That yeah. break, let Dude, me see. I was bonded through. to that. I was bonded to your character, man. I wasn't going to let you go off and do something by yourself. Yeah. As a game master after that thing happened, which they did a good job of like, we're going to go with them. I would have told the Crosswater Adventuring Company to tell them to go with them anyway. I'm yeah. like, that's your job. Go. Otherwise yeah. quit. And the reason it didn't work in Airy Peaks is that the game of Airy Peaks was about the peaks. Yeah. When we left the peaks, the game felt weird. It did. And we broke and the it game was like, cycle. Oh, we need to just go. But like Chris's fix for it was like, cool, I'm going to wrap up this story and then we're just going to return to the peaks. And we were like, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. that's great. Thanks. A good example of this in media we were just talking about a couple weeks ago was in The Bad Batch. One of the things I love about The Bad Batch is that when- You be careful. I haven't watched it all. When one of the characters or the NPCs they're tied to decides to do something stupid and foolhardy, they don't stand around for five minutes arguing about what a stupid idea it was. They just start killing bad guys and following along. Then so, they argue about how stupid it was later. From a game perspective, right? That's like an important convention mm -hmm. that you can set up in session zero. Mm -hmm. You can be like, hey, look, the tone of this game is like, you guys are impulsive. So if somebody does something impulsive, you're all unit bonded. You're all going to do it together. If you want to argue about it, you argue about it afterwards, but you just like jump in and engage it kind of thing. Like you can set that up, mm -hmm. right? To make it work. Because what normally happens is when you don't set it up, somebody Leroy Jenkins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then everybody gets pissed yep. because you're operating on two different ways to play the game. But you can just align that right at the beginning. Yeah. And just be like, hey, you know, in you know, this is a game about, you know, high adventure, danger, whatever. Everybody agree? Cool. And if you want to argue about it, that's the drama that happens after. Yeah. And then any discussion after a game like Stars and Wishes or whatever method you used can reinforce that or reattune that to whatever you want it to be. Right. Masks is an ideal example of that. Masks, you should just jump in and do shit. And then after you've picked up your conditions, because you need to act out mm -hmm. to get rid of them, is exactly the time you should start arguing about the shit you just did. Or you could spend three weeks trying to decide how to storm the vampire stronghold. That's the flip side. We have a group that does the opposite. Nobody follows along with anything. Right. You need to do that as a group. You need to pick a, pick something and work on it. That's player engagement. I hope everybody enjoyed that. Yeah. It is a very off-the-cuffy version of it because I like our energy when we do that, and I hope you all do too. Let yeah. us know in the Slack room or on Twitter or wherever if you like this episode or not. Hopefully you liked it. Moving on, Bob, tell us about another show on the Misdirected Mark Network. Yeah, we've got a show called Bonus Experience in which Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. Woo! Yeah. Now it's time to do some Patreon shoutouts as we close off this show. All right. Big super shoutouts to Cubano, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, and JT Evans. And thanks to everybody for listening to this. If you like our show, you can hear more just like it at misdirectedmark.com. 
If that's not enough, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com MMP, which has hundreds of bonus episodes available. Aside from the bonus episodes from the after show in the Bamboo Lounge, you also get our MM Plays stuff, like Phil's nifty setting for the Children of the Shroud, our characters from that game, the mods we're using in it, and Phil's Session Zero worksheet. Beyond that, there's Chris's game development notes on the Lamplighter system, which will power the Streets of Avalon RPG. By the time you hear this, I probably got the magic thing figured out finally. <laughs> we hope. And most importantly, you get access to our Slack channel, which is the best way to talk to us. If the Slack channel isn't your thing, and I kind of hope it is, but if it isn't, you can still reach us on uh, email at mmp at misdirectedmark.com or hit us up on Twitter. The show, the network is at misdirectedmark. It's always a great place to get a response. But if people wanted to find you individually, where do people find all of you guys on the internet? Find me at GM Gerrymander on Twitter and Dice Camp. I am at the Light 101 on Twitter. I'm also at Misdirected Mark. I almost always respond to that. I am Ro- Misdirected Mark, word scramble. I am at Robert M. Everson on Twitter and coming soon to Dice Camp. I am DNA Phil. You can find me on Dice Camp, Twitter, and TikTok. Last, we have a bunch of other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions. The roster includes Pandas Talking Games with Phil and Senda. I, I do enjoy hearing those pandas chew on that bamboo. Mm-hmm. The Gnome Cast, where Ange brings any gnome she can find and wrangle and potentially not kill or hopefully kill. I don't know. She just she decides whether she's going to stew them up or not. And uh, they talk about game stuff. There's Bonus Experience, which has some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer and is really fun. And then Thaka with Advantage with Ange and Jerry, where they talk about D&D, because they're going to talk about it anyway, so they might as well record it. If that still isn't enough, we have friends who create content. There's the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge. The Knights of the Night with their excellent APs. I like that Dresden Files game quite a bit. Mastering Dungeons, which is all about 5th edition D&D. I think they covered the Creator Summit about three weeks ago. And How to RPG, hosted by Sean P. Kelly of Gaming and BS. Catch it live on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern on YouTube. This has been a Misdirector Park production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop! We out!